Hello, and welcome to LINK, the industry's link to learn, innovate, news, knowledge, and global supply chain intelligence, hosted by Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. This new and improved podcast channel will cover everything from transportation and warehousing trends and technologies to food safety and sustainability impacting today's supply chains. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. I am Marina Mayer, the Editor-in-Chief of Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. Here with my team, you wanna introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Brielle Jekyll, I'm the Associate Editor. And I am McKenna Morales and I am the Web Editor. We're very excited because today we have our first guest joining us on our Facebook Live discussion. Everybody, this is Abe Ashkenazi. He's the CEO of the Association for Supply Chain Management. Hello, Abe. Welcome Hello, to Marina. Live. Great being here today. Our first brave soul to join us. <laughs> um, Abe, um, if you look in Food Logistics April issue, he uh, put together the column on disasters happening, um, talking about weatherproofing your supply chain. Um, and so today we're going to talk about kind of, you know, broken food supply chains and kind of the infinite meat shortage and, and supply chain disruptions on the line. So we're very excited. Um, I guess I'll just dive right in. Um, so first off, you know, one of the things that we kind of talked about offline is, you know, how can food processors keep the supply chain of people safe and working? Yeah, I think that's every employer and every employee's concern is, uh, are the uh, facilities safe? And number two, for the employees, can I uh, go into a workplace setting uh, knowing that uh, I am provided, number one, the appropriate equipment, number two, that the facility has done everything necessary to provide a safe and healthy environment? That's where you start uh, for the individuals feeling comfortable getting back in. Whether we're talking about a factory or whether we're talking about an office setting, every individual needs to be assured that they can walk into a safe environment and perform not only uh, on their job responsibilities, but from where the employer expects them in terms of time and in terms of safety. When we're talking about food safety, obviously the uh, stakes are elevated even higher because not only for the personal protection of the individuals, but the food products themselves need to be, you know, um, maintain appropriate standards for production as well as distribution. So we've got a very complex system of uh, supply and demand. And when we're talking about the individual supplies, not, uh, you know, the, the people side, not only are they uh, need to be trained, but they need to be assured that they can walk into an environment that is safe and protected for them so that they can accomplish not only their jobs, but more importantly, they're providing what consumers and patients alike need. Mm. Wonderful. Well, I'm curious um, because, you know, companies like Tyson are coming forward and saying that there's um, a shortage of meat and that it's going to be a, a bad situation. How can we avoid uh, the next wave of panic buying with this? I think facts help. And I think we can take a look at a couple of examples where we have had a shortage, whether for weather related or in this particular case, a pandemic that has disrupted the supply chain. Uh, when we take a look at the, you know, a disruption, uh, again, whether it's uh, environmental or terrorism or biohazard, or in this particular case, 
a, uh, a virus that has shifted the demand from a uh, consumers and um, all other industrial, commercial, and workplace settings into a home-based settings, we're seeing a significant shift in terms of the production as well as the preparation and the delivery and the support for a different type of food-based environment that uh, has radically shifted in a very short time frame. More importantly, we need to make sure that consumers and patients alike have relevant information about the availability and the variety of the food stock. We're seeing shortages from perceptions of you know, scarcity, that individuals feel like they will not be able to uh, purchase the appropriate quantity or the appropriate variety of products that they had in the past. If we take a look at consumer packaged goods, uh, let's take a look at toilet paper and the paper goods and the scarcity that uh, was driven from a lot of individuals uh, really panic buying. Uh, the perception that if I don't get it now, I won't have it in the future. So first, consumers have to understand that really nothing has changed relative to food supply in terms of the amount that is eaten. It's just shifted the demand from a workplace consume, uh, commercial or industrial setting into a home-based setting. So number one, we collectively, uh, the supply chain has to respond to that change in demand. Secondly, we have to make sure that there is enough for everybody. So you may not get the kind of the quantity or the variety that you like, but there is availability within the supply chain. Now, we have seen shortages, we have seen stockouts, but they've been temporary. Uh, we'll use our South Dakota plant where they completely shut down operations in that plant about uh, four to six weeks ago. That plant is now coming back online. So where we see stockouts and where we see shortages, it is a temporary shift. It is not a permanent shift of demand. So the supplies are still there. As a matter of fact, we have excess supplies that the system cannot handle today. And we've seen a lot of producers, whether it be milk or meat, have to make decisions about what to do with their excess inventory because of the processing cannot handle it right now for the consumer environment, either for production changes or just a reduced demand uh, completely for that particular product or service. So the consumers need to understand that they can generally get a protein and a product, but it may not be on the quantity and it may be a different mm -hmm. variety that they had um, uh, purchased in the past. I think that is really interesting. There's a survey that just went out that was posted on Food Logistics' website that said prior to the pandemic, people were very loyal to brands, especially mm -hmm. if they had similar consciences to them. But since the pandemic has happened and because there's been so many shortages, people aren't being as loyal as they once were. Mm -hmm. so just your statement really echoes what that survey has said so far. It's the, obviously the response from the producers to the um, processing plants, to the retail shops, to logistics and warehousing and distribution, every player within the supply chain needs to be appropriately sequenced to deliver what the consumer or the end uh, user uh, expects. And we had a very efficient supply chain prior to the pandemic. Uh, mm -hmm. We were keeping inventories low. We were keeping varieties up, stock shelves. The shelves were stocked with sufficient quantity for everybody in the market space. 
We don't have any more mouths to feed than we had two to three months ago. It's just that the shift in demand has now occurred in a home-based environment versus uh, where convention centers or um, workplace settings or stadiums where individuals would have procured that or secured that food product. Now we're seeing a shift in demand. So that does include a shift in variety as well. As well as with the stockouts, you'll see that perhaps you go to a, you know, a lower cut of meat versus what you had originally planned, but also you're seeing a shift in terms of the variety of um, vegetables and other food products that normally would have been used in a, um, a restaurant setting. Perhaps we're not buying as many of those particular products that we would have. So the shift in demand and the shift in variety is yet to be uh, truly identified as what is real demand versus what is a short-term shift in demand and what has been a permanent shift in terms of the food supply as well as the consumer's uh, expectations. Mm -hmm. So there's still a supply. It's just how it's getting out there. That's, that's an issue that still exists, right? That's a really good point, Brielle, because when you see the planning that for food, uh, whether it be meat or whether it be um, vegetables, these are all sequenced for a delivery at a particular time for a particular uh, mm -hmm. user or a particular consumer in the marketplace. Changing any sequence within the supply chain is going to have a ripple effect throughout the entire supply chain. So the supply chains need data and they need information and visibility within the system to understand what is real demand and then where do we plan on producing it, um, transforming it, storing it, delivering it, uh, whether it be cold storage or um, you know, shelf-ready products. So each of these activities within the supply chain have to be sequenced appropriately. And as indicated before, we had a really efficient supply chain before the pandemic. Now the changes, the inputs, whether it be labor, as um, we were discussing before, has changed. So we have fewer workers. So that means we have fewer processing plants. So that's going to affect the supply that goes into the processing plants because they can't handle the quantity. So now the changes are we're seeing excess inventory at the, you know, at the producer side, at the processing side, we're seeing squeeze capacity in terms of handling the supply. And that obviously affects the availability and the variety for the consumers in the marketplace. Sequencing all of these takes trained individuals. Uh, an example I like to, you know, or analogy I like to use is uh, this is like an orchestra. Everybody has a particular part to play, but it has to be done at the right time. So come in too early from a transition and you disrupt the entire process, uh, provide excess inventory or remove inputs into the system, it will affect the entire process. So this mm -hmm. is a highly synchronized process that requires uh, alignment and communication, not only on information, but um, monetary as well as product flow. Each mm -hmm. of these have an effect on supply chain disrupt or change in input, whether it be weather related or whether it be a pandemic in terms of capacity, and you'll see the kinds of changes or the kind of challenges that we're experiencing today. Right. Before we went live, we were talking about Mother's Day weekend and how some of our orders were canceled or wait times were too long. And I just like popped up and said, that's why transparency is so important. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
transparency when there's a shortage is also as important. Can you just touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I think this is part of the challenge that we have within a, uh, each of the supply chains is visibility and transparency uh, in the extended supply chain, not in just your tier one suppliers. And I think this is where a lot of organizations can really benefit from a scenario planning and to identify who are the players within your supply chain network, what are the disruptions that are potentially on the uh, causing either a um, lack of information or a lack of visibility into the uh, supply chain. And then more importantly, how do you measure those risks? I can tell you that the majority, if not all of organizations did not see a pandemic as a high risk in their uh, scenario planning. More often than not, it was probably uh, biohazard, it was probably uh, environmental, or it's probably terrorism that they were looking at, or a recession, that they were looking at disruptions in their supply chain. This particular um, disruption has affected not only the demand, but it's affected supply. And so when you affect, you know, the demand for products and services, as well as the supply side of the products, you'll see a significant disruption. But it takes time to wind its way through the system. As we start to see more information available for companies, you'll see a response, not only in terms of their transparency, but visibility within the extended supply chain. And you'll see that the the supply chain will catch up, but it takes time. Now, obviously, the size of the disruption will dictate how long it will take to recover. Uh, The tsunami in Japan knocked out production for almost six months for a lot of factories over there, but it was shifted into other locations. It does take time for supply chains to respond and become resilient. This will start to become a, a hallmark of associations in the future is this type of scenario planning. This is a hallmark of most supply chains is that they identify what those potential risks are, incorporate them into their planning process, and then ensure that they have the appropriate response systems uh, available to them. In this particular case, most organizations and most supply chains did not have adequate either resiliency or redundancy or agility within their supply chain to respond. Mm-hmm. So you bring up recovery. Oh, I'm sorry. You oh, no, go, go ahead. Well, I was going to no. say, you touched on recovery, and we kind of talked about that, you know, prior to all of us hopping on. And, and you know, recovery is, is kind of the operative word. It's like, how yeah. do you recover depending on how how broken your supply chain is. What, what are your thoughts or visions as to how the future of the recovery process looks for the food supply chain? I think you'll see quite a bit of investment. I think a lot of organizations have taken this opportunity to reinvest not only in their workforce. A trained workforce first is the most critical aspect that you can have within any supply chain. And these are the individuals that not only evaluate but make the necessary decisions on how to respond to the, you know, to any uh, disruption within the supply chain. So first, focus on your teams, focus on training and having capable, qualified individuals. Secondly, redundancy and agility within their supply chain networks. Uh, We've seen the impact of the lack of agility and lack of resiliency in this particular uh, disruption. So you'll see much more attention paid to agility and redundancy, but that comes at a cost. And somebody has to pay, whether it's a public-private partnership or um, organizations investing in um, uh, redundant lines that could sit idle and be repurposed in case of 
But those are investments that organizations need to make and be assured that there will be a payback at some point in the future. Um, as much as we'd like to think that every company will do it for altruistic purposes, we need to ensure that organizations are economically feasible and viable so that they can invest in the future. So that's first. Secondly, agility. We need to make sure that we can respond to surges, whether in demand or in supply. And in this particular case, we were not as adept in terms of responding to the surges, whether they are in consumer packaged goods or in the food supplies. Uh, you know, how did we respond? Um, and then I want to go back to a point that was made before on transparency and visibility. Uh, getting qualified individuals uh, first, developing plans, and then ensuring that you have transparency and visibility into your extended supply chain so that you are communicating and that you are responding to the changes in real time as opposed to having them affect you. You are now managing your supply chain proactively. Mm -hmm. I agree. I just want to circle back to what you said about risk mitigation plans, because that's that's sort of what your article was about in Food Logistics for April, too. And I have talked to warehouse managers that said that their risk mitigation plans usually are for weather, just spike delays and pest management or cybersecurity stuff. And they usually don't start to implement those within their risk mitigation plans until either they get hit or a bigger partner or a bigger company has been hit. So I'm just like super curious about what those plans are going to look like in the future, because it's not just the big players that are getting yeah. hit. It's everyone. Yeah. Now, you're bringing up a, a significant difference in this particular disruption than in others, and that is every aspect of supply chain and uh, humanitarian as well as economic has been impacted uh, by this disruption, and it's going to take a collective effort. Uh, this includes uh, large as well as small and medium-sized businesses coming together, but I also think that we need a public-private partnership on the, uh, what we consider as critical to our uh, not only national defense, but in terms of our economic viability as an or you know as a country, there are changes that we can make to understand what the risks associated with these types of pandemics are in the future or disruptions. The majority of disruptions in the past were isolated, either weather related or terrorism or biohazard. They were in a particular location that affected a local region, as opposed to a pervasive pandemic that affected the entire world. Uh, so we're seeing a disruption not only in global trade, but we're seeing it in domestic uh, supply chains as well. So this is going to take a coordinated effort with public-private partnerships, as well as with a global uh, perspective in terms of addressing these types of challenges. Uh, there were a, lot, a number of articles about uh, sourcing of critical uh, supplies from China and or uh, India or other countries, and the disruption has prevented uh, consistent delivery and availability of those particular uh, raw materials. So we're seeing that organizations have shifted to mitigate or to find alternative sources for those raw materials. Planning for those types of disruptions takes a holistic effort across multiple organizations as well as multiple supply chains. And this is done with trained professionals working in a collaborative fashion across their supply chain and with their partners. But it also takes a, um, a 
discussion about where investments should come from to build in redundancy and agility into our supply chains. So when we're faced with these types of disruptions in the future, we have a plan in place on how to address it and how to respond. And I think this is what uh, has challenged a lot of the supply chains today. The, the planning was for weather-related or for more isolated disruptions as opposed to a pervasive and holistic disruption of the entire uh, global supply chain. Mm-hmm. Nobody could have planned for this. Nobody in our lifetime, there hasn't been a global pandemic like this. I, I know I talk about my mom every single live stream, but I swear she's our biggest fan. But she called me before this started and she said, we've never been through something like this. Like, so my grandma would have been 100 this year. And so she lived through the polio pandemic. Yeah. And my mom explained to me on the phone that at that time, which when my grandmother was little, that they closed down parts of Milwaukee that they couldn't go outside. They couldn't play because they were so scared of people catching polio. And now there's a vaccine for that, but there isn't one for this. And so I'm just so curious about, and this can be opened up to the entire group is how we can keep people caring about this and keep, how can we keep people safe when it doesn't directly affect us just yet? I think one of the things that we'll want to pay attention to is, uh, and I'm going to go back to a point that Marino was pointing out before, on the recovery, and that is taking a long-term perspective as opposed to a short-term fix and bringing in concepts of sustainability, uh, both environmental, economic, and ethical sustainability practices. We have an opportunity coming out of this uh, disruption to be better prepared for disruptions, whether they be weather, whether they be a pandemic or other types of uh, disruptions within the, you know, the, the supply chains. Sustainability is critical. And as we evaluate the decisions and, you know, uh, coming out of this recession and as well as the, you know, the humanitarian um, you know, losses that we faced here, our hope is that the decisions that are being made by senior executives take the long-run view about sustainability for their organizations, as well as the people that we impact through the supply chains. And at the end of the day, this is about people, uh, not only the supply chain professionals, but the consumers, patients alike. Uh, supply chains have an impact on our economy. They have an impact on people. Uh, from my perspective, the, the, you know, the medical professionals will help us get out of this uh, healthcare crisis. It'll, supply chain will help us get out of the economic challenges that we faced here. But my, our hope is that as the decisions and investments are being made, that we take a long run view on sustainability from an economic perspective. Obviously, organizations need to be viable, but also from an environmental perspective, as well as an ethical perspective. There are a whole host of opportunities for supply chain to do good, but there are also a lot of opportunities to fix a lot of the challenges that we've seen in supply chains in the past, Uh, whether they be slave labor, child labor, or conflict materials. There are opportunities for us to uh, be a responsible, accountable industry for supply chain. And I hope as with the decisions are made for the recovery, that we keep sustainability and accountability and responsibility among our key metrics moving forward. And that's a good point, because I was talking to um, one of our readers yesterday and, and, and we were on a call and one of the things was, well, how important is sustainability 
at a time like this. And it's like sustainability has, has always been a thing and it should be an even bigger thing now because companies are able to sit down and hunker down and like you said, reinvest and, and reallocate how they're doing things. And automation and robotics play such a huge role now, especially with, you know, the employees, you know, social distancing and not, a, you know, then what if a line worker gets sick? And so automation and robotics can kind of take over a lot of that, mm-hmm. but then they also provide some sustainable fa- facets to it as well. So that's a very key point that I think um, a lot of people in the industry kind of overlook, like, well, sustainability is on the bottom floor and it shouldn't be, it should mm-hmm. be up at the top when they're re- re-eval- reevaluating how they, you know, transport product and make product. Mm-hmm. Especially that's where the conversation, go ahead, Brielle. No, I was just thinking because it was interesting when this all first started, where the government started um, relaxing regulations because it was hard to audit mm-hmm. and things were more important. And what, I mean, the first thing that they became relaxed on was environmental mm-hmm. uh, regulations, which you know made me kind of nervous at first. But I think with everything going on, it's not like people are looking to mm-hmm. pollute. So I, I feel safe that everyone was still trying to maintain, you know a good standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. I think this is one of the areas that a collaboration within an organization could really benefit. And that is bringing supply chain professionals, sustainability, climate change officers into the C-suite and having them, you know, not only opine, but affect the strategic decisions that are made for the long term. There are trained professionals, get them engaged in the conversation on how to effectively and, uh, you know, responsibly respond to the challenges that we have. Uh, the capabilities are there. The individuals are there. Get the conversation going with your supply chain, your sustainability professionals on how to respond to this in an accountable and a responsible fashion. Absolutely. I totally, I completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. And even just going back to it, but there's now sustainability officers in the C-suite. And I think mm-hmm. So I'm very young. I'm new to the workforce. I'm new to this industry. <laughs> Stress that every time too in the live streams. <laughs> but climate change and global warming was something that we, I was so familiar with growing up. And the college that I went to had a sustainable renewable energy systems mouthful major. <laughs> and so now people have that education and can go into these companies and help build their yep. sustainable practices for and if something like this ever happens again. Now, this is, uh, I think this is a watershed moment for organizations. And you had the business roundtable last year identified that among corporate responsibility was social And that is a significant difference because we've always known that economic performance is a critical um, metric for organizations, obviously, to stay in business. But embracing uh, ethical and, um, you know, environmental standards to ensure that you are sustainable as an organization and that you can report out. I think it bears mentioning that the consumer is becoming much more conscious about their organizations and who they buy from. And I'd like to see uh, organizations respond to consumers by being transparent about their supply chain practices. 
Um, share with your consumers, share with your customers where your raw materials come from, what your production facilities are accountable for, and how you recycle, reuse, and mitigate uh, waste. And hopefully that we've developed a focus on circular economy that we can eliminate waste. Consumers and patients alike are much more aware of what is in their supply chains. Uh, as we recently discussed, uh, supply chain now is understood, and both the positive and the negative or the challenges that uh, we've encountered. Uh, it is time, uh, we believe, for organizations to step up and be accountable, and uh, we'd like to see that companies embrace sustainability uh, on a number of different dimensions, not just economic, but environmental as well as ethical standards that are in the market. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think another part of being transparent within the supply chains that you have to be transparent about work, worker safety mm. as well. And that is a very nowadays, especially with this pandemic. And there's been so many reports that go along with the shortages about like doctors and nurses only getting one mask a week. And then in these meat packages, packing in, factories or just in factories in general, they're very close together and gather mm -hmm. shields in between. But when you ration masks and you ration shields, you're rationing safety. Yep. So do you have any insight on that? How can we keep these people safe? I think there's a number of standards that were established by either the CDC, OSHA, or um, organizations themselves that have safety practices. I would say um, ensure that those are up to date. Uh, make sure that you are complying with the new standards relative to this pandemic and uh, the transmission uh, possibilities or probabilities to lower them as much as possible. Uh, organizations, they can, can reconfigure their processing as well as the proximity of their employees uh, should do so. This is, um, from my perspective, an opportunity to listen to the medical professionals in, uh, in uh, partnership with the operations professionals. Uh, employers want to be in business. That's the bottom line. Employees want to work. This is not a question of either uh, the companies or the um, workers saying, no, this is not, uh, we don't want to do this. They obviously want to be in business, but we have to make sure that they're safe and that they can come to a uh, workplace without any concern about their physical as well as their, um, their health. Um, and uh, this um, is consistent with any organization's policies. And I would say organizations need to comply with their, not only their own policies, but with the CDC as well as OSHA. And there are industry-specific uh, regulations, whether we're talking about food or whether we're talking about uh, aerospace or you know, technology. Each industry has a set of standards that have most likely been established by the associations that represent them. I would say organizations need to ensure that they're compliant with not only their own industry standards, but that they are taking extra precaution in today's environment. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And I love all the information. I feel like, you know, we kind of covered a lot of ground in a lot of different areas. And so I really appreciate you coming on board and talking to us and, and providing your insight and your expertise and um, that's how these Facebook lives are. You never know which direction it's going to go. And, yep. and I'm just so thankful that you were able to, you know, give us, give us some facts. Um, and we want to be respectful of your time as well. So we do appreciate you coming on board today. 
um, for any of you readers out there, um, foodlogistics.com. And again, you can pull up Abe's article. It's also online, but also in our April issue. Um, our June issue of Food Logistics is all about sustainability. So um, maybe Abe, we can bring you back on and have a sustainability focused. Would love uh, to have the opportunity. Um, because it's, it's talking about everything from yep. sustainable warehousing to uh, apps that are designed to enforce sustainability within a facility and so much more. So keep an eye out for that. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to all of our readers and followers for being a part of today's discussion. Please follow us on Facebook to tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Central for more Facebook Live conversations discussing hot-button topics impacting today's supply chain and logistics industry. 